0: Sometimes recovering. Generally recovering. thank you very much. Thanks for what you do to keep the whole organization together. I don't have too many pictures of myself. Uh, When I was at uh, my peak weight, I managed to avoid the camera. In the back of people and things like that. Uh, give you some history. I have been a compulsive overeater all my life. There was no time at which I was not obsessed by food. There was a time I didn't realize I was obsessed by food, I didn't realize I had a disease, but I was obsessed. And somehow my body was able to absorb it because uh, I stayed thin until uh, I was working on a master's degree in college. And uh, my body just wouldn't handle it anymore. And I started to explode with weight and went up to uh, from about 170 to 235. Then I went into the Army uh, immediately after I got through with school, and my weight dropped down to 170. I stayed away from foods I should have stayed away from. I got all the exercise I could, and I found the Army uh, to be a peaceful place for me. <laughs> uh, somebody else did the worrying for, for me. I, I didn't have to worry about preparing for an exam or doing a paper. They told me what time to get up in the morning. and. They gave me weekends off. When uh, Saturday afternoon came along, I didn't have anything I had to do. And in school, I always had an, a paper to do or an exam to work on and uh, uh, could not handle it, didn't realize I couldn't handle it, except that I was eating all the time over it. I ate to uh, pacify myself. In the Army, I didn't have to do that. and. Uh, especially since end ended the Korean War in the middle of my basic training. I, I think the American Army sued for peace when they saw me coming.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: and uh, I thought the problem was solved. I thought it was over. And I, I've had that illusion many times, many times on my way to uh, Overeaters Anonymous, that it was over. I was no longer going to have a food problem. So I came out of the Army, and within about a year and a half, I gained 115 pounds. I had that uh, job uh, Judy Hollis uh, talked about where it it seemed like a dynamite job, but she knew she'd gain a whole bunch of weight. Well, I had a dynamite job. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was a reporter for a small newspaper working my way up, and uh, I loved my work. A lot of anxieties through it, and uh, the weight just piled up. If I would gotten a job as a farmer somewhere, or digging ditches, or or maybe working on an assembly line, or stayed in the Army, uh, maybe uh, things would have been delayed a little. But I don't think they would have been delayed permanently because I was afflicted with a disease, and that disease was compulsive overeating. Over well, the next 25 years after I uh, gained that weight, I tried a variety of things to lose weight, and in a number of them, I got into this uh, positive paranoia where I felt it was over. Uh, one time, I remember, I just stopped eating for 12 days, continued on with my life, and had a rapid weight loss and was sure that... Uh, When I came out of this, I now had a good start, and that would be it. (laughs) I would get into different programs. Uh, I'd go to uh, what they call, uh, well, human potential centers and take all sorts of courses that were very helpful. Uh, My life wouldn't have been complete without them. And somewhere in the middle of it, as the weight came off And as I was feeling better about myself and I was learning new things, I would get the illusion that compulsive overeating was behind me. And when I came out of the place, sometimes within an hour and sometimes within three days and no more than a couple of weeks, I was back to eating the way I had been. And the way I had been was to eat all the time. I would eat my three meals and then I would eat... uh, one of the games I would play would be uh, I had this uh, blood level that I, sugar that, or whatever it was, I had to keep in balance. The way I had to keep it in balance is by eating halfway between the meal and between the next meal and eating a lot and eating foods that I would no longer eat. And uh, at night, the real eating would start. You know, the day was the appetizer. The after supper was, that was the serious stuff. And there were two parts to that. The first part was uh, when my family was awake. Now that part didn't count after they went to sleep. So then I could get into the second part of it where they weren't watching me. And if I stayed up till uh, two o'clock in the morning, I I do still often stay up late. As late as I stayed up, I would eat. And uh, about nine years ago, I had heard enough from different sources about Overeaters Anonymous, and it was time. So I came to, uh, I was living in New York City for the summer And I went to uh, some meetings there and got into the program. And I still remember the the time I stood in uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and had that feeling come over me that it was time to eat. And 100% of the time that that had occurred to me, in my entire life, I had eaten. If there was food available, and I would make it available, I would seek it out, I would eat, and I called my sponsor, and she wasn't home, but our answering machine came on, and I talked to the answering machine, and for the first time in my life, I did not eat. And it had never occurred to me before. Uh, except during these periods of positive paranoia. If I were on a 12 day fast or uh, an 8 day fast, you know, or if I were at one of these places where I was taking courses uh, and there was lots of sunshine and exercise and yoga and massage and all that. But in my normal life, where I didn't have support system all around me or I wasn't in one of these fasting trances or whatever. It was the first time ever and it it was a miracle to me. It just that I was willing to make the phone call and that I was willing to talk into the machine, that I was willing to reach out, that I accepted the fact that I couldn't handle it alone, made the difference. And uh, I came back to Ohio and went to a couple of uh, OA meetings located near me. And I was the only man in the program and dropped out of the program. The next summer, back in New York, I got into the program again. And again, there were men in the program. And this time I knew, I don't care if I'm the only man and there's 100 women there and they're talking about whatever that I can't identify with. I have to be at the meeting. And so I started going to the meetings. And at that time, too, I was doing a lot of work in the Dayton area. So I would time my work to come to Dayton. And I met a, an awful lot of people here who, uh, who were of help to me in the program, including my sponsor, uh, my former sponsor, who helped me along the path and for whom I I won't embarrass him. Yes, I will. Karen. <laughs> Who has a tremendous help to me. And uh, taught me a lot about myself. And I'm deeply appreciative of uh, Karen. And I've stayed in the program ever since. Uh, I'm not at the, my low weight. I'm not at the weight I want to be at. I'm not, uh, I'm not as serene as I want to be. Uh, but I don't eat after supper, when, except once in a while I go to a party. I can stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning and be zero calories. I go 100% of the time between breakfast and lunch and lunch and dinner without eating anything. And it's not white-knuckling it. The compulsion to eat in certain ways has been lifted. Because I, I know that I don't have any more willpower today than I had when I came in the program. But I've had a remission, a partial remission, in part of my life. And I'm grateful for that as I pass the picture around here, and you know, I'm grateful that I'm not that person. Because I, I, was on, I was on the way to a sure death. And as you look at that picture, you see a dying man there. A man who, uh, who could not handle it. A man whose disease had, uh, had just overcome any chance he had of, uh, of recovery without some kind of a miracle. And so I have a sense of gratitude that I found the program. A sense of gratitude that the program is here. A sense of gratitude that people like Linda and John and the rest of you keep this organization together. A sense of gratitude that when I travel, that in any city I go to, that I can find 12-step meetings. And it's now been, I guess, six or seven years without sugar. I decided as part of uh, my cutting down on calories to give up alcohol. And it's uh, it's been about that same amount of time that I haven't had anything to drink. And I hang out with a lot of people who do a lot of drinking. Uh, I run into them in business and uh, and elsewhere. And it's like there's a shield around me because I don't, I don't have the willpower to avoid some of the foods that I'm avoiding. Uh, I, I want to talk something about uh, some of the things I'm going through. I'll start with uh, my business. I've always been somebody who, if things go well, and the way I know that things go well is with a financial statement. Now, that's what I'm largely referring to. That if I have a good financial statement, the way I'm built, or the way I'm put together, uh, I can feel good about it for about 10 minutes. And if it's a bad statement, I can go 10 days with it. <laughs> uh, I had a period of about eight years after a lot of hard times where things went very, very well. And, of course, there would be setbacks during that time. And then after coming into the program, I had a period where things went terribly. They're really ghastly. We're on the edge of losing it all. And I want to tell you, I felt better. I mean, I didn't feel good about it. But I felt better being in the program and having that to support me when things were going bad. than before I got in the program and things were going great. My level of feeling bad, the floor had risen <laughs> on it. And uh, I, 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 I was just feeling better. And you could not do enough good things for me. Enough good things couldn't happen for me to feel good before I got into this program uh, one of the things I'm going through now is a great transition in uh, my uh, marriage and uh, the program is very helpful we're not sure which direction we're going but the without the program I think on a scale of uh, 0 to 10 I probably would be uh, sub or minus 10 at various times. And the program uh, has enabled me to uh, get through this period so far, uh, not feeling as badly as I did in the former days, before O.A. And there are a lot of lessons to it, a lot of lessons in the program about it. One of the lessons for me is uh, the lack of uh, or the lesson dealing with isolation, that this is a disease of isolation. This is a disease that thrives on keeping things to myself, a disease that thrives on secrets. Anytime something comes to the top for me on a, uh, that's a secret, I have to tell somebody because that's part of my recovery. And there was something a little goofy I was doing, and uh, I called my sponsor and told him about it. And uh, he wanted, you know, there was some puzzlement about why I was telling him this thing. I said, "Well, I'm telling you because I've never told anybody, and I need to tell you this. I, I need to share this with with uh, with somebody." And on that level, he understood it. That, I don't want to have one secret in my entire life because that secret will work on me. I I sense will work on me and pull me down. Now, in this that I'm going through in this uh, marital transition, I've had the support of OA people that I can call them up which I do often, uh, almost entirely the men in the program, and talk to them about it. I can tell them the latest thing that she said and the latest thing that I said and the latest thing we both said, and I can talk and talk and talk about it and get a a healing out of that. And I can't visualize what it would be like to go through something like this without having that kind of support and uh, the, uh, the other the other part of it that comes to mind right now about the program dealing with the program was that I did a meditation uh, several nights ago and just asked for a message just relaxed and focused on my breath, and then lay back, and waited for a message on it. And the message that came was that I was not dealing with my wife the, the way that we're supposed to deal with, uh, deal with our resentments, that I had not prayed for my wife. I had not prayed for her good, good health. I had not prayed for prosperity for her. I had not prayed that things go well for her. And so I started uh, a series of nightly prayers for my wife, and I can't say that uh, you know that cured the situation, but it brought it to a level uh, at least uh, within me and uh that uh was at a much higher level, a much more acceptable level, a much more serene level, uh, a much more desirable level for me in the relationship. And I need to remind myself that I have a very powerful tool, one that I need to be grateful for in dealing with resentments, because that is something I cannot have. A single resentment in my life will negatively impact on my program. And before I came into the program, uh, the resentments were just something on which I built an edifice. I, I got better. And the idea was to get better and better on the resentment and uh, to work it through and intellectualize on it and be smarter about it and uh, get new insights into it. And so I had the world's best resentments. (laughs) And uh, and consequently, they're on my mind. Uh, I won't say constantly, but I'll a lot more than I want them to be. And if I were driving the car alone, the resentment would pop up, and then I'd review it and go through it, and I should have done this, and I should have done that, and all this garbage. And now, and I'm grateful for it, I can work the tools of the program in dealing with it and don't have to carry that garbage around. Well, the topic that I was to talk on today was gratitude. And I see gratitude as, a, uh, as my best form of prayer. I have not prayed a lot in my life, I don't come from a, I come from a religious background but not a spiritual background. And uh, when I start naming that which I'm grateful for, I feel I'm praying. If I'm in a grateful mood, if I'm taking the attitude of gratitude, at that time I'm practicing my spirituality. And regardless of whether I'm grateful whether I express it as being grateful to God or even being grateful to God. Just being grateful is being grateful to some high, higher power. And when I'm in a, an attitude of this gratitude, I'm, a, I'm in a state of grace. And I don't do it a lot. The little that I have done, the times that I have devoted to it, have made an enormous difference in my life and I intend to do that I intend to, uh, to step up my the time spent in gratitude I have a lot to be grateful for uh, the program just everything in my life I, I asked my sponsor I said I have to talk her in gratitude what do I say he said turn to the obituary column he said if you're not there be grateful (laughs) a lot of us didn't wake up today (laughs) a lot of fellow citizens on earth and uh, I, I know when I see some of the scenes on TV television read my newspapers about what's going on in the world. There are just hundreds of millions of people who are worse off than just about any of us. Those of us who live in a land where there's no civil war going on and no death squads and a land that's committed to the kind of things this country is committed for at its highest levels of idealism. And to have something like that is something that I have a tendency to take for granted. The slightest little thing that comes along. I mean, if somebody would nick my car or overcharge me for something, you know, right away I'll begin focusing on that. And I think for any of us, certainly for me, There's always something that can come along and disturb my serenity if I'm willing to allow it. And I need to focus on the fact that I have a tremendous amount to be grateful for. One of the things I would do, I did it for a long time, was just before I went to sleep at night, I would count off seven to ten things for which I would be grateful. And often the same things came up. And uh, sometimes the new ones would come in, and this was my form of prayer. We have a family member in uh, AA who uh, said that's one thing to do before taking. Why do people keep from taking a drink? That uh, just real six things. Six things you're grateful for if the urge uh, would start to be powerful. I'm grateful that uh, I was asked to speak here today and uh, to remind myself of uh, of this subject, to look out at faces that I've known along the way, the pathway. Uh, there's many people in this room who uh, I feel I owe a lot, too, for keeping the, uh, in this program, precious uh, views along the way to recovery. I feel I'm just getting started, that uh, most of what I have to learn about this program is in the future. I'd like to open up the the floor. You can speak where you're at or come up here. Okay. All right. That's right. We have a recording. To people who would like to talk on the subject of, of gratitude, perhaps to name something you're grateful for. Maybe something you'll think of as other people are talking or just something or some things that you'd like to talk on for a couple of minutes. On the subject of gratitude, so. Anyone who's who's going to start? Okay, and just line yourself up here.
2: I'm Robert. I'm a compulsive overreader. Uh, I'm grateful for a number of things, especially this program. I'm new in the program, four months. I'm grateful to Murray, who is my sponsor, for telling me about this program. I was scared to death. I knew for a long time that I had to change my style of life. I had been in just about every kind of diet program that you can think of. I'm sure all of you share, or many of you share, that kind of thing with me. I was looking for something, and I feel at this point that I have found the thing that I need to do. And I really am grateful to Murray for helping me in a very kind, loving way to find for myself what I need to help me stay healthy in every way mentally, physically, spiritually. It's a program that if I can use it, if I can use my sponsor, if I can allow myself to find the serenity to maintain the habits that I need to, my abstinence. I am not perfect with my abstinence. But it has, what I have found is that my weight has leveled off and very slow losses, which I had never been able to do in my life. It was always the up and down kinds of things, gaining a lot, losing a lot, gaining a lot. For four months, and that's when I think of the many of you who have been here for years, I'm just beginning, but I am grateful for what I have. I'm grateful to be able to come to this group. This is my first uh, marathon. Uh, Murray asked me to come down along with him to share. And I really am grateful for your energy, for your love, for the sharing that you do with one another. Um, I really don't have a lot more to say, but I just really am grateful for all of you and for my sponsor and for my group. My group is a great group. Thank you.
0: I'll get you for that. Anyone else? Subject is gratitude. I know I got a lot of grateful people I'm looking at here.
3: <laughs>
4: I'm grateful for the sunshine and the weather.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, all right.
5: Uh-huh.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much and good luck to all of you in the program. On the road to Serenity. Everyone here today
4: dayton is uh, definitely home we've been here this is the fourth time the air force sent us here three times and the last time it was our choice so it kind of grows on if anybody's still trying to decide whether they like this place or not um this is my ninth year in oa and my name is karen and i am a very grateful recovering compulsive overeater <laughs> oh, i love to hear that thank you yes this is the first and only group i ever felt welcome in anywhere. And now John told me uh, that my topic today was going to be fear and resentment and naturally had no idea why he would think of me for this topic. Um, Possibly because I'm an expert in both of these. Um, But then he said well we have to allow time for sharing. So he says you need to have about oh you need to have about um, 35 minutes and at least 20 minutes for sharing and I thought, oh my god, there's only 15 minutes to talk about fear. <laughs> and it's only about 20 minutes to talk about resentment. And how on earth could I possibly talk about it in that amount of time? Um, fear has been my constant uh, companion. Um, it's like when I was growing up, I, was, I just think I was afraid of everything. Any idea of taking a risk. Uh, I was afraid to go someplace new. I have all the directional sense of a rock. My father would always say that um, I could get locked going out of the driveway, and that's very true, so I always had a big fear of going anywhere. I had a big fear of doing anything different, um, which translates into a fear of the unknown, which was the real big one for me. I always felt it was kind of looming up over the shoulder, you know. Unknown's going to gobble you up. I don't know what I expected, but I always thought it was going to be bad. There's a lady in the back, Sylvia, <clears throat> who knows all about my fears because I would call her and give her endless lists of them. She single-handedly got me through statistics when I was going back to graduate school because um, I got a D in algebra when I was in high school and I knew that, that meant I was a complete and total failure in the math department. So uh, there was probably no way that I could ever go to graduate school. If it had not been for the acceptance of this program, I never would have had the courage to take the risk of even going back to graduate school at all, under any circumstances, or alone to tackle statistics, which is my you know, big monster, the very first thing. When I came into this program, I really thought, basically, I was a zero. And uh, I think, that not only did I wear my resentments but I wore my 70 pounds of whatever included a lot of fear and my fears weren't always named just like that that unknown and so I kind of looked like that sort of lumpy and, and shapeless and fuzzy around the edges which is kind of how my fears were because I was really afraid of everything and everybody um, People did not like me very much when I was growing up. I wasn't very likable. Um, I was very negative And they uh, were saying, you're too this, you're too that, you're too pushy, you're too bossy. Um, and part of it was that, like other people have mentioned today, I think I had parents who were rather perfectionistic. And being quite a perfectionist myself from a very early age, then we all got together to decide on how to do things most perfectly. And, of course, if you can't do them perfectly, there's no point in doing them at all, right? Right? I, I, other people understand it. So then fear would set in, right? What if I couldn't do this perfectly? Nothing else would do. When I was strictly black and white, 100% person, right? If I didn't get 100% or at least 99, that was a total failure. Now I've come to realize over the years that some days are just 75% days. Some days are barely even 50% days. And that's the best that I can do on that day. And that is really okay in the overall scheme of things. The part of all these fears that I suffered from was really this myth of perfection. But I never was allowing myself to make a mistake. I was never allowing myself not to know something. I mean, when I was growing up, I could not imagine anything worse than not knowing. Oh, to be called on to class and not know. Oh, you know, I always felt like the world was going to end. It was just going to stop, you know, and I would fall off because that was really what it was all about, was being perfect. So I had... A fear of hunger. To this day, I cannot stand being hungry. John knows this. I have to say, I have to eat on time because if I don't, I get sick and I get a little strange up here, and uh, I'm not very much fun at all. So I have this big fear of being hungry. For a long time, I was afraid that I was not going to have enough food, and this had some basis in fact because apparently, when I was a child, I had been quite sick at one point and My parents were concerned about my loss of appetite, which was the first and last time it was ever lost. But they they ate the food off of my plate. And then they laughed because I would sit there with my arm around my plate eating, because I thought they were going to eat my food. Well, that feeling never left me. So reality had nothing whatsoever to do with it. I was afraid that there was not going to be enough. So I would hide food around the house. I don't. I doubt anybody here could relate to that. But um, I would hide the food different places, and then uh, sometimes family members would open drawers that were supposed to be full of dishcloths and find granola bars, and uh, they would say, "Oh, well, what is that doing in there?" And I would say, "Oh, what is that doing in there?" Because of course I was afraid to tell the truth. I was afraid to really be myself because I had never been myself. I didn't feel like being myself was okay. So it wasn't until I came in to OA that I really ever had the courage to just be me. This was the first group that ever accepted me just the way I was, until I could be what I needed to become. And I had never had that in my whole life. So I came into meetings and I cried and cried, and it felt so good just to be with other people who understood. Because like some of the other speakers have said, my, I could identify with, I have eaten compulsively since I was a child. That is all I know. I couldn't tell you when I started, I just always did. Mm -hmm. So for me to be abstinent and not eating compulsively now is a miracle. And I thank my higher power for that miracle, for sending me to this program. So that a miracle could be worked in my life because I am sure, without a doubt, having gone through every other diet known to men and women in five countries, that nothing else could have relieved me of that compulsion of overeating and that fear. I was either afraid of what I'd just eaten. I was afraid of what I was about to eat. I was afraid of what I was going to go and get to eat or who was going to see me, who was going to find out. I used to play this little game where we'd go to the the party or whatever and I'd hardly eat a bite. Who did I think I was fooling? You know, when I weighed 200 pounds, people knew that I was putting something into my mouth somewhere, whether I did it in front of them or not. But the only person I was fooling was me. And the person that I was the most afraid of was me. And I used to feel like there was some kind of monster that lived inside of me and it would just come up and I'd want to consume Toledo. You know? <laughs> and I mean this is how I, I thought you dealt with life. I mean I had so much trouble when I came in at the program. You know my life was not unmanageable. What do you mean unmanageable just because I'm late all the time? You know, 'cause I forget things constantly. Because I had headaches every day. Because I was so tired all morning I couldn't do anything and I come home after work and rest in the afternoon and then get all revved up at night and ready to zoom around and everybody else was going to bed. I didn't think that was unmanageable because I had always lived like that. I didn't know until I got into OA that I did not have to live that way. I used to eat a a half of a, whatever, you know, one of those little circles within a circle. And I thought I was doing such a wonderful favor for myself. Look, I was only getting half the calories. It had not occurred to me that I was putting refined sugar into my body. And just like alcohol is poison to some, refined sugar is poison to me. And that had never occurred to me before. And they say now that... uh, Some professionals say, well, the 12-step programs work because people need to give up something, and that makes them feel better to give up something. Well, I think that's a lot of hootenanny. The fact is that my body works a whole lot better when I don't put that stuff into it. And Now, maybe it would have been harder for me, but I have physical reactions to sugar, and that is one fear I don't intend to give up. That's a fear I don't intend to lose because I don't want to feel that way again. I don't want to be tired. I don't want to be irritable. I don't want to have to go to sleep in the middle of whatever it is and wake up wanting to, you know, eat half of the city. So I know something that I intend to keep. That's one fear that I think is healthy. I want to keep that. In the past few years, there have been all kinds of fears. All kinds of things that I could not have handled without this program. I was trying to finish graduate school. My father was very, very ill. He died the day the minivan came to our house. We had our cars at the airport, and we were in St. Louis. Our furniture was on the way to Maryland. I thought that was one of the worst moments of my life. Then two months after that, my mother fell and broke her hip. And three weeks after that, she had open heart surgery and went into respiratory arrest. Now, I thought that was one of the worst moments of my life. And two months after that, then I had a sinus infection that went up the whole side of my face and had there was so much pressure inside of my head that it broke the bone around my eye. And when I sneezed, the air went under my skin and blew my face out. And they thought I was gonna get meningitis and they thought I could die. And I thought that was definitely the worst moment, except that I was so sick, I didn't know how sick I was. And I wish now that somebody had told me that I really wasn't making very good decisions. Because <laughs> I would have gone in the hospital a whole lot sooner. But of course, I had this man just magnifying mind like the big book talks about, and I thought, I knew what to do, you know? My background is in nursing, and I work in healthcare, and I knew what to do. Except that I had no conception of how I really was. So then I had to have surgery. And when they do your sinuses, they get very close to your brain. So that was a slight <clears throat> cause for fear there. And I got over that, and then the place where I was doing my internship said, Well, you know, we can't be sure that you're going to stay healthy so we can't tell the school that you're really going to to finish on time. You want to talk about resentment? You know, I didn't feel like I asked to be sick. I didn't feel like I asked for that. I was working 12 hours a day to make up the time, and I felt like, you know, they could have cut me a break. But that's the way it was. And probably 10 years from now, that's not going to make any difference. But that was a really, really big resentment. Then, after I had felt like I had been going through this for seven years, I couldn't get a job. I could get part-time jobs. I had two part-time jobs. I couldn't get a full-time job. And I was going around, you know, why did I do this? Why did I do this to myself? Resenting, resenting, resenting. Tony gave me some wonderful tapes from Father John Doe, talks about resentments. What does it mean? It means race and to refill it. And what we do is we rehearse it. So at first we're just a little aggravated over it. And then you know what? We're really hot about it. And you know what? Then we're really steamed. And by that time, I mean, hey, I don't know about you, but I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) eat. You know? Because that... And then you know what? We're really hot about it. you know what, then we're really steamed, and by that time, I mean, hey, I don't know about you, but I'm going to eat. You know? Because that, when all else fails, that's what I do with my feelings. It's frequently I eat over them. And I work with people who are addicted to all kinds of chemicals, but not to food. They haven't got that far yet. Um... (laughs) we rehash them and we have lists of them and I don't know about you but I used to have them graded you know this is the three and this is the five and this is the ten you know you know Sylvia used to kid me because we we're going to have a mafioso hit list for all my tens you know not that I get personal or anything like that and now one of the things that is crystal clear is that frequently the cause of the resentment is pride. It's something to do with I, in a capital I, some way that I feel like my self-esteem is damaged, some way that I feel that someone has taken you know, a poke at me. They haven't treated me with the proper respect. Now, why me more than anybody else, huh? I mean, that's not reality. But at the same time, I realize that's something that I have to deal with just about every day. One of the things that is suggested is to practice the opposite virtue of humility. Now, I have a hard time with that, too. But I think it's because I have this tendency to overdo. And so either I'm grandiose, you know, and it knows no bounds or I think that I'm lower than dirt which is simply kind of an inverse grandiosity if you think about it so for me to find the middle ground that is humility is real hard and then I can come into this group and I can feel very humble because I don't feel like I'm any better than anybody else in this room I can learn from every single person here, every person who gives the lead, every person who shares. There's something there that I can hold on to, something that I can learn from. Hopefully there will be something that I can say that may help somebody else. But that's one of the things I love about this program is that it's not where Linda gives it to me and I give it back to Linda. Linda gives it to me, and I can pass it on to Dreena, she can give it to Janelle, and Janelle can give it to somebody else. And that's what I love about this program, because we don't have to look for how we're going to be paid back. We can pass it on. We can help each other. To me, that's what this program is all about, is how we can help each other. One of the things I ask myself about these criticisms and the, these resentments that I have is, you know, how important is getting upset about this? What kind of priority do I want to put on this in terms of my whole life? Is this going to be something in six months, in a year, in five years? Am I really going to remember every single little detail of this incident? Is it that cosmic? Will the Earth stop because of this incident? I do the same thing with my fears. I do what I call the worst case scenario. And I try and just let myself have this fantasy of whatever awful thing I think is going to happen. And I ask myself, how likely is that? Well, if it isn't too likely, then I decide I don't really have to worry about it. If it's somewhat likely, then I ask myself where I'd be able to stand at. I have this little keychain, and it's got a little card in it, and it says, The Lord never panics. (laughs) You know, I need to remember that. Because lots of times, I'm down here tearing my hair out. But he isn't. He's fine. And if he's fine, I can be fine too. But that's one of the things about fear and resentment, it's like, I let go of it and I take it back. And then I let it go and then I take it back. And then I let it go and then I think it creeps up on me. <laughs> <laughs> because then I realize I've got it back again. And it's something I have to be aware of all the time. And one of the things I really liked about the tape that John lent me about, Father John Bell was he says, when somebody comes and tells you something, and it's this and it's that and it's so awful, and they expect you to get mad. He says, you really have to decide. Do you want to get mad over it? Do you want to lose your serenity over whatever this is? Let the other guy get mad. He's upset. Let him be upset. I mean, it's kind of selfish, but this is a selfish plan. I'm trying to figure out how I can recover. If this other person gets mad, it may not upset their whole program. They may not go out and eat over it. There's always a possibility that I might go out and eat over this. So ask yourself how important it really is. The other thing I ask myself, is this feeling bringing me any closer to my higher power? Am I a better person because I feel this way or because I want to act this way? Because people rub me the wrong way, and I get resentful. I get real twitchy and real irritable. And I have a very fast mouth. (laughs) So I have a tendency to want to tell them off. So I know these things about myself. And if I let this feeling go, it is really not going to do me any good. So therefore, I think it really helps for me to try and figure out what I can do about it. And I keep coming back to this myth of perfection, that somehow this world is supposed to be totally fair. Hmm? Isn't that a big myth? I bought into that for years and years and years. You know where on my birth certificate does it say the world will be fair. It does not say that anywhere. So it helps if I don't really expect that at all times, being fair with me, that I'm only human. And however wonderful my intentions might be, however much respect or integrity I feel that I'm trying to convey to somebody else, I'm still human. I may forget something, I may not do something, I might have the human frailty of coming down with an illness at an inappropriate or inopportune time that is part of being human. And where I am in my program right now, and all of these comments are strictly mine and don't reflect any way the basic stand of OA. But where I am in my program is I am trying to learn to live in a less than perfect world, in a less than perfect body. Because when I first got into program, then I was totally obsessed with the physical side of it with how I was supposed to look and how I was supposed to dress and what I was supposed to do. And I did, I weighed and measured my food when I hit the plateau, which is where I had always been before, that I wasn't satisfied with that. No, I to weigh with those little charts Say you're supposed to weigh. Now the fact that I weighed that for two weeks when I was 12 years old, <laughs> never done on my, you know. My great rational mind never comprehended that maybe this wasn't quite the right way for me because I was obsessed with this and I was just as compulsive about weighing and measuring my food and everything around the physical part of the program as I had been about my eating before that. I was scared to death to go out to a restaurant. God forbid that they should serve me an extra calorie. You know, it's like I thought those little white flower bums were going to just jump on my body, you know? Yeah. I, mean, I had nightmares that I would wake up and wake you know, two hundred pounds again, that this this was really not real. And part of that was because I was so obsessed with it. And I was so compulsive about it. And the fear drove me to do a lot of strange things. I was very miserable. Now, I love to look at my pictures from that period of time. I think I looked wonderful. That is all I had. I didn't feel well. I was freezing to death. I'm a person who's been overweight 90 pounds in kindergarten. Other kids weigh 30, 32, 35. i weighed 90 pounds in kindergarten. I had never been a regular-sized person. I was starving my body, and it was telling me that. My hair was falling out. My skin was very dry. I had no energy. I was so cold I could not even go swimming in the summertime. It didn't matter how hot the day was. But of course, thinking that my mind was alright, I kept the sun. Until it finally occurred to me that it wasn't healthy not to have any energy. And it wasn't really healthy for me to be doing this with my body, and that's not reality. So my reality now is that I don't feel uncomfortable when I walk into a room anymore. I don't feel like people are pointing at me anymore. Because I think I am basically okay. And I'm okay inside, which may not show to everybody else. And that's really all right. And I don't resent anymore. I don't have to resent. I don't feel the resentment for whatever those people might be thinking. Because what matters now is how I am inside and my relationship with my higher power. So whatever you see outside, this is only temporary. And I think the spiritual life lasts a whole lot longer than the physical. And I hope that you have found some ways to get rid of your resentment. And I think John will give you some time to share those. Thank you very much for having me.
5: I'm happy that you and your husband moved back to the area. For people that, yeah... For people that don't know, and I don't want to break any anonymity here, I guess, but he's not in program, so maybe it doesn't make any difference. But Karen's husband is very supportive of 12-step program. He was uh, instrumental in getting the uh, AA and the treatment center established at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base when he was an intern back many years ago. In 1983, we had him as a guest keynote speaker at our convention. And I'll tell you this, Karen, you can pass this on to him. He's the only person that, I, and I've been to all the conventions since 1980, that I've ever seen where they stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Remember that, any of you people over there? So we're sure glad you're here. We're sure glad you're supportive of our program. Uh, and tell Jim I said hi. Uh, hey, guys, when I said take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth, I wasn't talking about now. We left plenty of time by design to get up here and, and tell us. Maybe you've got some other ideas how you handle your resentments. Please tell us. We need to know. All yours.
6: Hello. Hi, my name is Tom, and I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Tom. Well, Karen, I think I owe you a thanks. Uh, my first away meeting was over at the base uh, hospital over at Wright Pat, and it wasn't until the Air Force finally put a good housekeeping seal of approval on the program that I finally walked through the doors, thinking it wasn't something for little old ladies in the corner. That uh, you know, that it was maybe for us guys too.
0: So, yeah. Uh,
6: so that that was about six years ago. Over that six years, I've fluctuated from uh, 230 pounds down to probably as low as 170, and I'm somewhere in between them right now. Um, What I want to share with you briefly is resentment, relapse, recovery, and maybe some thoughts on some tools. The first time I made my third step was a very tense moment for me. We were in a marriage encounter group. Uh, our group was the, the couples were going through quite a few serious problems. Uh, one fellow was dying of cancer. Another fellow, another couple was uh, facing a divorce. Another couple's uh, child was very sick uh, in, a, in a hospital, reacting very badly to drugs and. There was a chance she mightn't live. Uh, Oddly enough, I made the third step when my wife and I were giving a lead to our uh, marriage encounter group one night, and I I felt like I was on the top floor of a burning building. And uh, I turned my life and my my willpower over to my higher power, figuring if it was his life, from here on in it was his problem. Uh, that worked. I got down to 170 pounds, uh, but what I didn't get rid of was my resentment against God, uh, because that's what I really resented that night. And uh, reflecting on a resentment and looking back over the times I was in relapse, when you're in relapse, I think part of the sad part is that you have no hope to share with your brothers and sisters in this program. At least I didn't feel that I did. Uh, and so, you know, and you didn't want to go back as a bad example. Uh, you figured, gee, everybody needs as much hope as they can out of these meetings. Uh, and that, that's, you have no hope yourself and you're not looking at, for it anymore. You have none to share. Uh, I never realized what a deep role resentment played in that. I came across something in, in Big Book that hit me right between the eyes. In fact, I didn't even have it outlined before. And it was in Fourth Step where Bill was talking about that, and he said, uh, but with the alcoholic, this is on page 66 if somebody's interested, uh, but with the alcoholic whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave, infinitely grave. We found out it was fatal. When harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. Sanity of alcohol returns, and we drink again, and with us, to drink is to die. You can put food into that if you're talking. And if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. Well, you know, when I reflect on that, if I shut myself off from the sunlight of the spirit, I'm shutting myself off from my higher power, and I can't make this program on my own. Without my higher power, I cannot make this program. And that's what I was doing with my resentment. The word resentment comes to relive again or to re again. Why do I want to re-feel again all the trash and hurt that I've had in my life? Why do I want to regurgitate that within my gut and have my whole being vibrate with hate to the point to where I have to opiate it with food? Now, my drug of choice happened to be food. I could have as well been alcohol or, or any other thing, but my drug of choice was, was happened to be food. Now, I I really hurt on this. Let me share with you two things that clued me recently that resentment was acting up. I never thought of them as tools. Step 8 and 9 talk about uh, made a list of all people we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. When I first read that step, I felt very uneasy. And my initial reaction was, where are all these people that have hurt me over my life? Are they queuing up to come out and make amends to me? Does anybody have that reaction to themselves when when they went through that step? If you do, I suggest that maybe your higher power is telling you that you've got a resentment, that you have to work upon. The second tool that I never thought of as a tool is one that we use at the end of a meeting. We hold hands and we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it goes on and it says, Uh, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, my mind had to take that, and I figured uh, my higher power was playing a game of niggisop. that was, now I've got you, you son of a gun. Uh, So I had to change that prayer to where I wasn't accusing myself and say, and forgive us our trespasses and give us the grace to forgive those who have hurt us. Okay. I couldn't say it the other way because I got tired of condemning myself. I never realized, in the very act of doing that, that I was harboring resentments that I wasn't willing to own up to. Now, there's another tool that we never, I never thought of as a tool before. I find now, and Bill talks about it uh, in uh, Fourth Step, uh, he says that, well, you can look upon these people as sick people, and you wouldn't you know, hold a resentment against somebody that was sick. Well, that helps a little bit, but not quite, because some of them, I think, did it by design. And I I have been hurt, Uh, but yet I have to get rid of these resentments if I am to stay alive, if I am to work this program, if I am to stay sane, if I am not to opiate myself with food. Now, let me give you a hypothetical situation. We're told that food is baffling and cunning and powerful. Did you ever sit down with a pizza pie or a nice hero sandwich and look at it and say, you're powerful, and the food doesn't say anything? I said, you're baffling, and it sits there on the table smelling good, but it doesn't say anything. And I said, you're powerful, and it doesn't do much of anything. The The most important part of my abstinence is that I cannot afford to allow that first bite into a resentment. That is the most crucial part of my abstinence. It's the only thing that I can agree upon that I need to be sure of in my abstinence. I cannot afford the first resentment. And I know when I have that resentment. It's either when I'm saying, Father, and those words bug me, or I'm off on a tangent, or my gut is off on something to where I know I need to opiate it with food. Then I've got a resentment that I've got to bury, and the food is a symptom. The food is a symptom. Okay. I can treat the symptom, but if I don't treat the disease and the dis-ease, what I'm dis-eased about is my reliving again that anger, that feeling of hurt or whatever it was that I've harbored down into my gut with that resentment. So I've got to work on that. How do I deal with it? Well, the way I'm trying to deal with it, and I think, you mentioned this, Karen, one is that I really pray for my enemies, okay? I make it a very active part to pray for my enemies. I focus on them, and I pray for them. I ask my higher power for the good things in their life, the same good things in their life that I'm asking for myself and for my own family. That's not easy to do. But as I do that, those resentments gradually ease off. The second thing I do is that I ask my my higher power to, to help me with this, that I am not powerful enough on my own to do this, to deal with these resentments. That is what is cunning. That is what is powerful. That is what is baffling. Why do I want to relive again all this trash in my life that's tearing my insides apart to the point to where I have to coat it with food to keep it down, to keep it from regurgitating in my throat and from choking me to death? Food was killing me. My blood pressure at 260 over 130. I had a death sentence. I can't afford to go up to 300 pounds. I'll be dead. I've got to get darn serious about this program, and the first step... And my abstinence the most crucial step in my abstinence is putting away resentments i cannot communicate with my higher power nor he can can he communicate with me if i put a resentment between there maybe this is what the bible said when you have a beef with your brother go settle that argument and then come up and talk to me okay leave your gift and then go out and settle with your brother and then come back the other thing i learned is when i'm resenting that's a two-edged sword it's a mirror because when I'm lashing out at somebody else, I can look in that mirror and say, is that same fault within myself? And a lot of times it is. What I have really resented in another human being is one of my character defects that I need to work on. So I'll share that with you today. I think they're extremely important to my abstinence. And the tools, again, when I'm saying the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses. If I feel guilty about it, I know i got a resentment I have to work on. I better think it through. And when I'm talking about that step of making a list of people I have harmed and making, becoming willing to make amends to them all, if I'm waiting for them to line up, I've got a resentment. Thank you.
5: Tom doesn't know him, but I used him in a talk last week in uh, a retreat. and. The one thing that we're talking about a relapse workshop that I was doing was that almost everybody that's in relapse thinks they have absolutely nothing to offer the program. And does that identify anybody identify with that or anything? And I heard, and this is what I said I said, six weeks ago, I heard a man sitting in our meeting said he had absolutely nothing to offer. Three weeks later, he gave one of the most inspirational leads that I have heard in years. This guy right here.
7: I'm a compulsive a reader. Hi, Hi everyone. Um, fear and resentment. Uh, my my greatest fear has been uh, of dying with this disease um, progressing, and my resentments have been a lot with OA, with with itself. I've been in these doors and out of these doors for the past nine years, and it wasn't until uh, 21 months ago. Uh, Tuesday that I will have had uh, uh, abstinence and a 50-pound w- uh, weight loss. Um, a lot of my resentments with OA was that I came, I thought I did what uh, I was told and I didn't get abstinent and I didn't get the steps and I didn't get the program, but I kept coming back. and um, I didn't realize that it was the easier, softer way I was doing. I kept saying, well, I can do this and I can do that, but I can't do that. I can't make 90 meetings in 90 days. I can't give up sugar. But I'll only eat three meals a day. I wasn't willing to do what this program told me to do. Um, I thought the easier, softer way was my way. In reality, the easier, softer way is exactly how they tell us to do it. Um, I've been in relapse, and now with 21 months of recovery, it's been the best time of my life. Um, The way I deal with with a lot of my resentments is um, is page 449 in the big book, and I want to share that with you, and and that's acceptance. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it was supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. That includes the length of time it took me before I was willing to get abstinent. Until I could accept my compulsiveness, I could not stay sober or abstinent. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. And I think that's a real key for me in... uh, accepting work situations, family situations, OA personalities that I can't stand, my uh, inability to control or manipulate or run the meeting the way I want it run. Um, when I read this page, when I realize that the, the conflicts I come into are there to help me grow and to become a better person um and maybe it'll help someone else too you know it wasn't a mistake god put these people in my life at that time for a reason and it isn't just for me but it's for them too and so i i really believe that acceptance is a real key to getting abstinent to the fear and the resentments, and to be able to work this program one day at a time My
1: I told John a little while ago. I, I really came here today to do what he said: take the cotton out of, out of my ears and put them in my mouth. By sharing some things, and I, I guess I just had to share. One of the things was resentments, and and that, I guess what's brought it to head is because I'm a, I'm a inside in my head I'm a scriptwriter. I write scripts every morning when I get up. And when you don't act the way my script says you're supposed to act, I'm going to get resentful at you. And the the place that I'm learning to deal with that is here at meetings like this. This is where it's at for me. Um, And this meeting is really holding something special for me. And I I guess I'm really talking about gratitude before and I I almost got up then, and I kind of sat back. I almost got up when John asked about, about meeting, and sat back. And I just want to share a couple of things with you. The meeting is for me because I got something here at, the, at these meetings, um, and some of the people that I got it from are sitting out there. I joined the, got in the program. I, th- I was thinking I, I got me- mixed up on my time because I really don't count too much. I knew it was eight years, someplace around eight years ago, and I thought it was in two weeks, and it was two weeks ago. And and that's okay. Um, but about seven and a half years ago, I went to my first marathon here in Dayton. And I think there's something like eight or nine of the people that were at that first marathon, they're sitting out here in the audience. Um, there's four or five of us from, uh, from uh, my first home group. I didn't know what the hell we were doing, did we? We, were, we were all had the greatest diet club in town because we all joined about the same time. I mean, we, <laughs> well, we had all kinds of good professional help, all kinds of good books and things to read. Then we found the program, went to our first, <laughs> went, went to our first step meeting here in Dayton, great little meeting eight or nine of those people that were at that first step meeting are out there. A couple of people that we've seen serenity in, in their eyes, they're out there sitting in the audience today. and see the same serenity that they, you know. One of the other things that I went to and, and I think that what gave us a little something <laughs> special and helped us to keep coming back and keep along.
6: We used
1: to go to a meeting after i went to the marathon after we start reaching out used to go to a meeting over in kettering and afterwards sometimes we made that meeting sometimes we didn't but we ended up at perkins eight or nine of those people are out there they used to be there there's faces out there i remember from perkins there's people that i met for perkins at perkins for the first time Hell of a lot of program went around because we stayed after meetings and we talked to one another. We learned how to reach out and say that it's okay to be wherever the hell you're at today. You know, if you're suffering, it's okay. If you're not suffering, that's great. But we're here. And if you need to talk, I'm serious, you need to talk. You might be at Perkins till 2, 3 in the morning. But we were talking, and that was great. Um, the, other, the other day, I don't know, it was a couple weeks ago, I guess, I uh, heard somebody talking about finding God. Uh, it just happened that the meeting that our home group, which I think is the best home group now, used to be when we were here in Dayton, we had a neat home group, and that was my best home group. Moved to Columbus. That great home group is there now. Uh, I really believe in that. I heard that back in the beginning of our program too. And and uh, if if you don't feel that you got one place that you can call home, find it. It's here. It's in in four walls someplace, and your family is there. Find that home group. It makes the difference in the world. That great home group. But. at this home group, somebody asked, how do you find God? And the next day, somebody proceeded to tell how to find God. And they talked about a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And I, I, I remember it from my high school days, because, uh, because it was just kind of a special poem. And, and uh, basically, all it says is you got this hound, which is really our higher power, chasing you all over the place. And we keep running away. And finally, at the end, the person that's running away stops. And the hound of heaven finds it or catches up. And and basically, you know, for me that's what this program was all about. When I decided to finally stay around and wait and stop after a meeting and talk to somebody, to go sit down and have a cup of coffee with them, to reach out and meet a neat lady downtown and give her a hug. Uh I couldn't find the higher power because what I was doing was just the opposite. I was the guy running away. I was the guy that wanted to hide from all of you. I was the guy that wanted to go and sit in the closet and wait till you were all gone. That's why I used my compulsion. That's why I used to smoke cigars. Kept me away from you. You people taught me how to let you in. And I I really thank all of you, the the, the special nine that are out there, and you know who you are, and and all the rest of you for being here, because you still give me that hope. You still give me that experience and that strength to go on and say today is okay. Thank you.
5: I just want to share one thing with you real quick. Uh, Jim and Sylvia, his wife, and I used to ride to a lot of meetings together, and I'd sit in the front seat, Sylvia would sit in the back. Jim and I would argue all the way there and all the way back about program, and Sylvia would sit in the back seat saying, Hey, dummies, you're both saying the same thing. (laughs) Uh, You want to share with us one more, and then we're going to have a break, and then we're going to have a raffle. Sure. Well, okay. Oh, okay. (coughs) Okay.
3: My name's and I'm a compulsive overeater. Uh, being the compulsive personality I am, I have a tendency to um, put things off. So I have to go back to gratitude. And there's something I'd like to do today. Uh, Linda, would you come up here with me, please? Uh, six years ago, I was Linda's hotline call. And uh, When she called that day, I was binging in a full-fledged binge, alone and afraid, and not a whole lot of hope. And so Linda had asked me that day if I would be willing to go to a meeting that night and I did. I attended my first OA meeting after her phone call. For the next 21 days, Linda and I talked on the phone. At the end of that 21 days, she met me at the Kettering Library. She gave me my first Food for Thought book, and she gave me her 21-day coin. And I'd like to give Linda something today. I have never wanted a coin, a coin before in LA. I've never gone up for my coin, and suddenly I had a just this real urge that I wanted the new coins that they had out, and I wanted the butterfly coin. And it was going to have it was going to have my number six on it, which my anniversary was the latter part of January. So a week ago, I asked if I could have it do the encouragement of someone else in the group saying, go get, it, go get it, go get it and I did, I said, I want it I want it well, what I want to do with it today is give it to the per- first person that ever said to me Dreamer I am a compulsive overeater well, I Say today, I am a compulsive overeater that desires recovery, and I give this to you with great love. Thank you.
7: I gotta let you in on a little secret. I heard.
3: Call the hotline thing they had just called and given me a number because we were in there near the near that it's my first response call back. Uh, she scared me so much, I didn't make another one for about three years. <laughs> 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 I
1: had no idea what I was
4: getting into. <laughs> Perfect,
8: I am Marie, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um I wanted to get up and speak on gratitude, but I said I wasn't going to talk today. Um, but anyway, um, I also want to speak a little bit on gratitude and on resentment. And first I'll say resentment. Um, I've had a lot of resentment as far as my job was concerned. And I found that um, as much as we eat food, my resentment was eating me and it was consuming so much of me and it had me where I was really in relapse and in the process of it I just couldn't really kind of work forward. I would still go to meetings and I talked a lot and there were people who really listened to me and, really, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, I knew the things that I could do and one of the things that I did about this resentment and about the people and my job and everything that I was resenting is that I started praying for these people. I mean I was praying for them. Every single day I went to the chapel, every morning that I worked and I prayed for these people. And I was telling my daughter and my husband one morning when we were sitting around the breakfast table and they said, how could you? And I said the only reason I'm praying for these people is because I want my program to work. And my husband's not a compulsive person or anything, but he's very supportive of, of um, program. And I said, this is the only way and that I have to really, that I can really work my program. And in the process of praying for them, in the process of talking to people, I was able to really, I feel like was able to get back One of the things that I'm really grateful for is that um, I met this nun who was about 85, 86 years old, and she said that one day she was sitting in the chapel and she asked God to change her attitude, and it was like a light bulb went on, and that's what I did. I asked God to change my attitude. Also, in the process of it, I feel like my attitude was changed. Now, those Crazy people stayed the same. They have not changed. Uh, but I feel like I changed and I can deal with things much better. I'm still on the job. I don't know how long I my thing my goal is to go to Houston. I mean, that's been my goal since last year, so I have not quit my job or anything, but I don't know where it'll take me. but I am grateful that in the process of all of the resentment, that was able to get to see that, how much it consumed me, how sad that I, the sad feelings that I dealt with and all of, all of the resentment. And, um, and I was able to talk it out and I was able to see all of this. And this I'm grateful for. And, and I, when I came into program um, a little over six years ago and people would say they were really happy about being compulsive, I really didn't, I never thought that I would say that I would be happy, but in the process of of it all, I was able to, I'm able to see, you know, where I've been and that I know that it's better and I've always been hopeful. After I came in, the day I came in, I knew that there was some hope. So I am grateful that that I'm able to even recognize it. And in the process of recognizing take responsibility and do something about it. I thank you all for being here. And I'm also grateful um, that we had Marathon this Saturday because next Saturday I work. <laughs> thank you.
5: You didn't know it, but Paul and I already arranged that, didn't we, Paul? Of course, we happened to hit the weekend. they got the convention in Cincinnati and we probably got 10, 15 people down there, but they don't know what they missed, do they? They really don't. I don't think that they'll hear what we've heard here today. I, You know, I really don't believe that. Now, we always save our best speaker for last, and we have got our raffle yet. What's that? You a gentleman.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
5: well, I'm glad you got one. Now you got something to work on, Murray. You thought you had them all under <laughs> I love it.
4: Uh,
5: Take a quick potty break or great break. We got some pop yet to sell. If we don't, we got to give it away. So, uh, about 10 minutes and then we'll have the raffle and our last speaker, okay? Well, look at him run. <laughs>